Um, again, that's Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through 56. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got on the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick, to, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched, it were made well. This is God's word. Well, speaking of walking on water, uh, you may have felt that this morning, or since that you just re-performed Jesus' miracle, making it here today. We're glad you're here. Uh, it is now February, can you believe that, 2024, uh, which means we're creeping ever closer to my favorite time of the year, my favorite month of the year, March it is because of March Madness. It is the college basketball national tournament where they crown a national champion. And my favorite team, the North Carolina Tar Heels, will be in it this year. Up until a few years ago, UNC's Hall of Fame head coach was a guy named Roy Williams. And during much of the year, Coach Roy would spend his time on national basketball committees and talking with recruits across the entire country about the message of, of the true family that is Carolina basketball. But during the season, Coach Williams would, would, would narrow his focus on the 12 young men on his basketball team and put his attention on them. And that's the season in which we find Jesus in Mark's biography of his life. See, for a season of his ministry, Jesus is narrowing his focus on his 12 players. These are the 12 that first get to play for his team. They get to participate in Jesus' new kingdom that he is inaugurating. Everyone gets to play, starting with them. So Jesus wants to make sure that they really get his mission, his message and really who he really is. Get him. So if you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, you've never trusted Jesus, we're in this little season where we're kind of focusing on those who do follow Jesus. You're going to get a little taste of what, it, what it's like to be close with Jesus, to be his friend. And there's a surprise twist in our passage this morning that really sticks out like a sore thumb, and I hope you noticed it. And it's this, that those who are closest with Jesus... The 12, the ones who, who spoke his good news message already and did deeds in his name, powerful deeds, they did not recognize Jesus. They didn't get him. While 
those who were in most in need and never met him before, they recognize him. It's a huge irony, right? The people close to him, they, they don't see him. Those who've never seen him before do. Even though he passes by them walking on water, he then calms the wind as he gets on the boat. The hearts of those on team Jesus, we are told, were hardened. The insiders were hardened. But as he gets off the boat, all casual and whatnot, the outsiders immediately recognize him and they come to him. So this passage presses upon you and upon me the question, if God were to pass by, would you recognize him? Like if God were to pass by today, would you recognize him? And I'm not talking necessarily the way Jesus looked back in first century Palestine, because God wouldn't show up today in that kind of context per se. He wouldn't necessarily show up with flowing robes and long hair within sandals and with a British accent because every film about Jesus apparently depicts him with a British accent. No, I don't know why. He was Palestinian. I don't get it. But if Jesus was born of a woman today in California and he walked into our service here on Schumann Lane, all casual, like unnoticed, would you recognize him? And of course, our tendency, we want to say, yes, of course I would. I was thinking of this story, and I remember as a kid, uh, we're at a full, having a full Thanksgiving day at my uncle's house. So we're there for a while, and I found a copy of The Jungle Book, this book, The Jungle Book by Rudyard Kipling. It's a book of short stories, mostly fake, fo- focused on this young boy named Mowgli growing up in the jungles of India. India was where Rudyard Kipling had grown up. And what, struck, what stuck out to me in these stories and later in the Disney animation film was Mowgli's attempts to be like, eat like, think like, live like these animals, like a bear or, or an ape or an other such animal. In fact, you might remember one of Disney's fam- famous songs from that movie, Be Like You. I want to be like you. I want to walk like you. I want to talk like you. I want to, I want to be like you. It was sung much better than I'm saying it right now. It wasn't spoken word. Though he learns to, to mimic these animals and be like them in every way, never does he become one of them, right? He doesn't even stay living with them. Eventually, he rejoins his species. He goes back to live with them. And in this way, I found churches to be a little bit like the Jungle Book experience, right? There are a lot of us who can imitate what it means to be like Jesus, that we can mimic it for the moment. We can. So in a nutshell this morning, this is the message. Church-going, Christian-speaking, good-deed-doing does not mean you recognize Jesus as the Christ. All right, so church-going, Christian-speaking, good-deed-doing doesn't mean you recognize Jesus for who he really is. And it's a tough one this morning that way, but that's what the passage is kind of bringing to our attention. Some messages would go better as a dialogue in a coffee shop. Some messages would be better to to have on a front lawn or to see in in a catchy video or something. But you're in the right place for this one because you are gathered with the visible church, the people who would be most likely to be like the 12 in our story, especially here on a stormy day, right, that you made it out. But not every member of the visible church is a member of the invisible church, saved by Jesus and bound for heaven. And it's a sad truth we're going to have to focus on this morning, that like Mowgli, a few, including myself, by the way, when I was younger, I'm putting myself in this category, closely mimic the other animals we 
around us, right? And when you come to church, it feels a little bit like that. It's like kind of like a, it's like a bit of like a zoo. I see other people doing this. Maybe I should do this. I see other people saying this. Maybe I should talk like this, right? And I did this myself, again, putting myself in that category when I was a younger man. Most of us assume we are part of both the visible but also the real and invisible church. And I'm not here to question whether you are or aren't or whether anyone is or isn't. So I'm going to let the Apostle Paul do it for me because <laughs> I'm a wimp. All right, so he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He encourages us to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Now he says this to a church. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourself? That Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet that test. Yikes, right? And yet, the more you read the Bible, the more you realize how it both comforts the discomforted, but at times, it likes to discomfort the comfortable. When we get too comfortable about stuff, we just assume things about ourselves, the Bible comes along to sort of discomfort us. So for any of us who've been church-going, Christian-speaking, good deed-doing for a time, it's kind of hard to escape what, is, what people have known in the church for centuries as a spiritual inquiry because they're peppered throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, even from Jesus. The only way we can escape a spiritual inquiry, regular, regular spiritual inquiries, is to sort of think of ourselves more highly than the churches that the Bible is speaking to. We have to say, whoa, whoa, whoa I'm, I'm above that. And of course, deep down we know we're not. So we need to hear it too. And I know even saying the word spiritual inquiry, it's going to freak some of you out. It's maybe going to cause you to have a little mild panic attack or feel some anxiety. But walk with me here. The worst that can happen this morning is that you go from, you know, one day, long time ago, I asked Jesus into my heart. I was baptized, I prayed a prayer, I went forward, I raised my hand, I've gone to church for so long. You go from that to, you know what, I realized this morning I never trusted my life to Jesus, but I want to today. That's the worst that can happen. All right, so in fact, I think it's far better to wonder or have temporary insecurity than assume, just assume you're going to be all good and nothing's wrong. In fact, sometimes I think wondering is part of what it means to have faith like a child. We use this phrase, you've heard this phrase before, have faith like a kid, have like a child. But a child tends to be much more willing to go there, to be curious, to inquire, even ask the hard questions themselves. I don't know if I am that. And that's simply what we're going to do today. We're going to spiritually inquire on land and on the sea, because that's the two settings of our passage this morning. So we're going to first look about spiritually inquiring on land. And we're going to talk about four evidences that you recognize that God has passed by in Jesus Christ. Four evidences that, that you recognize that God is who he says he is in Jesus Christ and you trust him. Verse 54, people immediately recognize him for who he is, that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I used to think the Christ was Jesus' last name. All right, sometimes it says Jesus Christ, or sometimes it says Jesus of Nazareth. And I thought to myself, which one is it? Tell me, which was his last name? And thankfully, uh, last year, Reno told me that the Christ is, in fact, a title. Thanks, Reno. It's a title for who Jesus really is. 
Jesus comes from a shortened version of a Hebrew name, Joshua. It would be eventually look like the word Yeshua, Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. So we have that part of Jesus' name, which tells us about himself. It means the Lord saves. The second part of Jesus' title is the Christ. Now hang with me here for a minute. The Christ is the, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew term Messiah, which simply means anointed or anointed one. Now quick history here. In the Old Testament, there are three groups who are set apart, anointed with oil, and like a ceremony to lead God's people. You had prophets, priests, and kings. In other words, there were those who were called to, to speak the right words of God. And these were known as prophets. There were those who were called to help people rightly relate to God face to face. And these would be priests. And then there were those who were called to rightly rule for God, to organize and assemble people for God. And those were known as kings. And the fact, the dirty little secret is, no one did it rightly. <laughs> No one could do it right for the duration of their lives. Every person failed to speak right, to help people right, to organize, assemble, rule people right for God until Jesus came. No one could do it right until Jesus came. And perhaps you can relate to that statement. I know I can't I feel like I can't do any of those things right most of the time. So in summary, Jesus Christ is the one who rightly does what we could not, and so is the right one to save us. That's what Jesus Christ means and who he is. The one who rightly does what we could not, and so is the right one to actually save us. And so the only requirement to know God and live forever is to trust that he is that right one. That he is that right one. And these people on land and Gennesaret recognize Jesus is the one who can save them from decay and from death. Sometimes we feel like we recognize Jesus as the one, but then we sometimes, well, maybe I missed it. Maybe I question what I've seen. I start to doubt. Some days we feel like we don't have any faith at all. We wonder, is my faith actually genuine? And so we get and. And their experiences, if you look closely, there's four little tidbits, four little nuggets, four evidences that you recognize God has passed by in Jesus Christ, that, that your faith is genuine. And this isn't going to be a scantron as I give you these four things. It's not a scantron test. Like it's not, you don't have to get four out of four, right? It's just a helpful guide for inquiring. Is, is this real? Is my trust in Jesus real? So first of all, in verse 55, what we see is having recognized Jesus, they ran about the whole region. Did you notice that detail? They ran. They ran about the whole region. Here's my question for you. Has your joy about Jesus caused you to tell others about him? Has your joy about Jesus just simply caused you to tell others about him? Has your excitement about salvation, that you're trusting Jesus, that he has done all the right that you could not, he's given you free forgiveness, he's given you the promise of living with you forever, and never leaving you, has that caused you to want to tell someone else and then done it? Because that's usually an evidence that your faith is real, that it matters, that's made an impact in your life. Second detail we might notice in verse 55 is they began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. Do you ever inconvenience yourself to be with Jesus or obey him? 
Second question is, do you ever inconvenience yourself to be with Jesus or obey Jesus? And some of you might say, well, Ryan, I drove here this morning, right? The wind and the rain. Come on, give me some credit. All right. (laughs) These people here help others who can't get to Jesus actually get to him. And they do so upon first rumor of where he might be. They don't even know he's there. But just the fact that he might be there still, let's go. Let's, let's take you right now, right? God doesn't send you a Microsoft Outlook appointment to confirm he's going to show up in a powerful way in your life, right? Usually, it's, it's a rumor. It's a suggestion. It's a hunch that you or someone might have that I think God is here in a special way. And if you don't stop what you're doing and act now, you might miss out. When is the last time you changed your course? You did something different. Or cease doing something maybe you shouldn't have been doing because you trusted Jesus above your own instincts and above your own routine, above your own habits. Remember, I'm not speaking about stuff you do anyway, even spiritual stuff. I'm I'm saying because Jesus is in my life, I'm going to change course. I'm going to do something different. It's usually a sign that faith is real. Number three, we see in verse 56. And wherever he, wherever he came, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, and they implored him to help, right? When is the last time you asked Jesus' help to the point of imploring, begging, even pleading? When, when, you, when you could admit that, man, I'm at a dead end here without Jesus. You ceased trying to fix it yourself to massage help out of other people, or, or even you resisted dropping hints to someone with influence, maybe they can help me, right? And instead, trusting Jesus as your only plea, you plead. You get on your knees and you plead. Jesus, if you don't help here, no one can. Because when you're in that posture with Jesus, usually it's a sign that your trust in him is real. And finally, the fourth one here, we notice it in verse 56 as well. They came that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many touched it, were made well. Has there, since knowing Jesus, been a marked change to your well-being? Has there been a marked change to your well-being since knowing Jesus? The final description and what we hear in our passage here is many as such that were made well. Calls to mind, if you remember the woman in Mark chapter 5, who having seen and entrusted herself to every doctor for 12 years, and she still wasn't better, she still had this ailment she was living with that caused her to be separated from community. She resolves, maybe if I just get around Jesus and I just touch his garments, I'll be made well. And what's, it, and, and what's interesting is Jesus responds by saying, daughter, your trust in me, your faith in me has made you well. The verb translated made well is a, is a verb from the Greek word sozo, which can equally mean heal or save in the New Testament. And so to be healed outwardly by Jesus, it was an outward sign of something that was happening inward inside of us. Someone who has been transformed by Jesus, someone who's trusted Jesus, and it's a real trust, it's being transformed by him. The Bible says degree by degree. In other words, little by little, day by day, there's some change in your life. And oftentimes, it's hard to see for ourselves, right? Because we're with ourselves every day. And I'm very frustrated with that fact, by the way. Most of the time, I'm like, yeah, I wish I could get away from myself. We can't see ourselves clearly, but usually someone else in our life can. 
So has anyone ever told you, man, I could tell there's a difference in your life. I can tell you're changing. I've noticed it. That's a great sign that you're trusting in Jesus is real. Again, you don't have to score four out of four on this. It's just a, it's a guide to help us think about this. And if you're left anxious or insecure because after honestly assessing your life as I've gone through these questions, you're thinking to yourself, whoa, I feel like I fall way short. I feel like I'm not there. Let me share something of comfort and encouragement with you. Recently, I was listening uh, to a, a more seasoned pastor than myself. He was sharing about an older gentleman in his church. It, it, this guy was a longtime member of his church, a deacon in the church, uh, beloved. But he approached the pastor and said, Pastor, I feel like I'm in some trouble. And so the pastor's beginning, how would you respond, right? You might respond like this pastor did. He said, well, what, what kind of trouble? Explain. He says, I, I feel like I fall short. I've fallen short, way short of what God expects of me. Now, how would you counsel in that situation? You might say, well, you know, we all struggle, right? That, thankfully, that's why we have forgiveness. That's why you say, well, God is patient. Well, that's what this pastor said to him. God's patient. There's forgiveness for everyone. That's why we have forgiveness. Until the pastor gently began to share with this man the kinds of questions I shared with you this morning. He said to him, like, when you hear Jesus' good news message, does it excite you to share it with other people? Because that might be a sign, a good sign. Or has there anything you've, you've started or stopped because of Jesus in your life? Finally, the man stopped questioning, and he just looked down and he confessed to the pastor, I, I, I don't actually think I know the Savior. I don't think I actually know him. If that's you, friends, this morning, that is okay to admit. It is okay to admit. Here we have this, if a, if a long-time, church-going, Christian-speaking, good-deed-doing man with an important standing in the church can admit that, you can also. Jesus wants such people to come to him. So even now, if, if, you're, if your heart is burning, you've gathered a little perspiration on your forehead, and you're a little disturbed because you, you don't yet know him, you can this morning. He just simply wants you to come to him to save you from death to life. So listen, if you would, for the next few minutes about a couple qualities about Jesus you might have missed, of who he really is. Because if you missed it, guess what? The original disciples did too. So we're going to go from land back to the sea. Two qualities of Jesus Christ you may not have recognized. Here's just two. Jesus loves you enough to withdraw tangible reassurances. Jesus loves you enough to withdraw tangible reassurances. I'm going to explain what we mean. Look first in verse 45. Immediately he, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after they had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, but he was alone on the the land. So he sends his closest friends out on the sea by themselves on their own, away from them. Now, quick show of hands, how many of you have the courage to admit you, you grew up a little bit spoiled as a child, a little bit of a spoiled child? Oh, that, you know, that is courageous. Thank you guys. I mean, that's a big, big portion of our group here. And what are one of the challenges you face, right? Uh, growing up as a bit of a spoiled child. One of them 
that it, it, it's just a little bit harder to grow into a mature adult, right? You're not left on your own as much. You're not left to yourself as much. If you have a parent who's always tangibly giving and doting and assuring you and being there for you all the time and giving you hugs, right? We, we, we sort of ex- start to expect that, right? A child expects tangible reassurances throughout life. Jesus does not remain with us in the flesh, does he? He ascends into heaven after he is resurrected from the dead. And he actually said before he ascended, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. He said it's actually for your good, literally advantage that I'm going away from you. Right? The normal Christian life is not feeling God. It's not experiencing all those feel-goods from God and those tangible reassurances. That's the normal Christian life. You don't feel those things. A wise follower I really like, a follower of Jesus uh, by the name of J.I. Packer, he's a really famous author, theologian, passed away a few years ago. He really helped me in this area, having grown up myself as a slightly spoiled child. Um, he reminds us that you know, early on when you walk with Jesus, you tend to get lots of, of joy, lots of reassurances, striking answers to prayer, more folks who immediately respond to us when we talk to them about Jesus and we're new to our faith. And so you get these things of like, oh, this is wonderful. This is great. This is all part of what it means. And what God tends to do then, as J.I. Packer says, he, as he starts to gradually withdraw some of those feel-goods, some of those tangible blessings, some of those immediately accessed blessings you get. And he does this to increase our resistance to temptation right, to help us grow. He does this so we'll we'll learn to stand on our own and simply trust him and not rely on all the tangible blessings he might give us. It's a hard lesson, but if you look back for some of you who've walked with Jesus for a while, you know it's an important one. Many of you have been been encouraged uh, by reading or hearing this famous passage from the prophet Isaiah. He says this, "'Even yous grow tired and weary,' And young men stumble and fall. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. So he gives us this poetic idea of of you'll go from from tiredness to to flying like an eagle. But do any of you know how eagles begin to fly? It's interesting. When a mother eagle builds her nest, okay, she starts with thorns, broken branches, sharp rocks, and another of of items you wouldn't think would be suitable for that kind of project. And then on top of those things, she she lines the nest with a thick uh, padding with wool and feathers and and fur from animals that she's killed. And so it's soft, it's comfortable for the eggs, right? And warm. But as the eggs hatch and the birds grow and and they get old enough for flying age, At that point, all they've experienced is the comfort and warmth of the nest and the luxury of free meals provided by mom, right? So they're reluctant to leave, as any of us would be, you know? And as if you have someone, you know, living in your house in their 40s, they're reluctant to leave as well, right? You understand this, right? You get this. So eventually, here's what happens. The mother eagle begins stirring up the nest. When... With her talons, she begins pulling up the the thick carpet of fur and feathers, bringing the the sharp rocks and the branches to the surface. 
And as more of the, of, the, of the bedding is plucked up, the nest becomes increasingly uncomfortable for the young eagles. They're like, what is happening here? I don't want to be here anymore. Eventually this and some other things, it prompts the eagles to leave what was once comfortable and fly towards maturity. Right? And to think, some of us want to stay warm in the nest when God means for you to fly. And Jesus loves you enough to withdraw tangible reassurances for seasons in your life so that you'll grow. We see here with the disciples, go, you're going without me. Another thing we see here about Jesus is his plan. Jesus' plan is what we would choose for ourselves if we were all good and all-knowing. Jesus' plan is what we would choose for ourselves if we were all good and all-knowing. I want to get to the two strangest phrases in our passage, because they may have stuck out to you like they did to me. For they did not understand about the loaves. What? What's, what's bread doing in this passage? Secondly is this, walking on the sea, Jesus meant to pass by them, which immediately stuck out to me like what? Jesus didn't intend for his closest friends to see him? Like it was a game of hide and seek or something here going on here? So I want to get to both of these things. First of all, the loaves. Why are the loaves in this passage? Well, it refers to our story we read last Sunday. We went through last Sunday. If you remember, the lesson of that story was the disciples had just worked really hard, and they think the best plan for them is rest. Not just any kind of rest, but getting away to be by themselves. But Jesus has a different plan, a better plan that he puts in front of them. It involves free teaching from Jesus, multiplying the fish and the loaves of bread, a full tummy while enjoying a miracle, enough food left over for breakfast the next morning but they don't see it. They don't see that this is Jesus' good plan for their lives. They just want the Airbnb by themselves, right? So that's the bread. Now, when Jesus walks on the sea, he means to pass by them. This is a reference to two different incidents in the Old Testament I'm going to tell you about here. To pass by, for God to pass by. The first is from Exodus, the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 33, in which a famous man you may have heard of named Moses Ask God, God, would you reveal yourself to me? And so God passes by Moses just to give him a glimpse. And as he passes by, Moses hears the words of God's true nature, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. So it's this moment Moses gets a glimpse of Jesus. The other time we hear about God passing by is in Job, the book of Job chapter 9. Here's what it says. God alone stretches out the heavens. He treads on the waves of the sea. So God walks on water, just like in our passage. When he passes me, this is Job speaking, I cannot see him. When God goes by, I cannot perceive him. Now, if you remember what Job's all about, it's about suffering. So when God passes by, Job can't see him because of this horrible stuff he's going through. And he thinks it couldn't be possibly part of God's plan. So Exodus passing by, God's nature is good. Job, when, when God passes by treading on the sea, yeah, God passes by, but Job can't see him because God's good plan is confounding to him. Like Job at that time, the 12 closest followers of Jesus, they're blind to Jesus, the goodness of Jesus' plan. They think he's abandoned us. He is not near us. That couldn't possibly be him. When you think your plan is better than Jesus' plan, I get it, I've been there. You're likely to see something unusual in your life 
as a bad ghost before you see it as a good savior. Something unusual happens in your life. You see something strange come by. You're likely to say, ooh, that doesn't belong here, rather than seeing it as part of Jesus' good plan for your life. But consider Jesus' good plan in this passage. He waits. He lingers behind. He waits so that their trust might grow. He does come to them in their darkest hour, where no one else is even awake, much less on the sea. He reveals his true nature to them as he passes by. He stops the wind from blowing against them, just as an extra blessing to prove. Remember, this is me, the God of the universe, in your life. Jesus' plan is simply the best that you would choose for yourself if you were all good and all-knowing. Up to this point, friends, you, you may have thought being church-going, Christian-speaking, good-deed-doing is what this is all about. And maybe for the first time today, you recognize Jesus is the one who is, who is weaving the strange things, the lonely things, even the deep-down hard things into his good plan for your life. And I want to plead with you, friend, don't miss this opportunity to recognize even if for the first time, that Jesus is the Christ, the one who, who does right what we cannot, and so makes us right with a loving Father. I want to encourage you to trust your life to him today. Let's pray. And so, God, this is a message maybe for those of us specifically who've walked with you for, for a little bit or been to church for a little bit. God, to just reassess to ask the question, if, if Jesus' closest followers didn't recognize him, do we? So, Father, I pray this morning that his spiritual inquiry wouldn't be a scary thing. It would be like the, the mother eagle sort of prompting us, making us a little uncomfortable, just to make sure that we're trusting our life to him, trusting our life to you. So I pray for anyone this morning who realizes, who's woken up to the reality, maybe I, I haven't trusted Jesus, that, that they would just take that opportunity to say, Jesus I want you in my life and to know that you welcome all who humbly come to you and just ask for you to be in their life. And Father, for those of us um, who do know you, Father, I pray that we would see your true nature. The hard things we're going through, Father, are part of your good plan. Father, that you may have taken away the tangible reassurances for a little while, but that's just so our trust would grow in you. So we'd learn to stand on our own and grow towards maturity and be the kinds of persons living for you that you've called us to be. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.